Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted, coming to you from my man cave in uh, Washington Heights, Manhattan, which is not where I thought I would be doing uh, the next episode of Relevant Tones, but uh, times are what they are. Uh, I'm used to actually hearing uh, applause when we do a live uh, stream, but I I'm remembering the applause that I heard at seven tonight in New York. Every night at seven, everybody goes out and cheers. And uh, I think because the weather is so nice, tonight was particularly uh, joyful. So I've got that to remember, and I've got my uh, red wine, nice little Pinot Noir. So I'm feeling good. We've got a great show for you. Tonight's show is called What's the Narrative? Uh, great uh, assemblage of guests. I think we're gonna have a really marvelous conversation and some fantastic music. So happy that you've joined us. Uh, I will introduce our guests in a moment, just a little bit of housekeeping. We are streaming to two Facebook channels. Uh, so if you're watching it and you like what you're seeing and hearing, just hit the share button. We'd love if you do that. We won't be swearing or burping or any of that stuff. Um, so feel free to do that. If you're watching us on YouTube, this is a new uh, Relevant Tones. We've never had a, a YouTube channel before. So we'd love for you to subscribe if you like what you're seeing there. Secondly, uh, we are streaming to Zoom. If you've ever seen a Relevant Tones live stream before, it, it usually is, is a little more uh, professional looking, but because we're uh, bringing people in remotely, we had to use Zoom, so it's a little clunky. You're gonna see my cursor. You're, you're gonna see uh, you know, my desktop probably. Uh, you're gonna see the man behind the curtain. It's, it's me, <laughs> so uh, just bear with us, we hope, on that. And lastly, the music is all pre-recorded tonight because we really prioritized quality in the audio and the video. And because somehow I think we're all as busy in quarantine or busier than we were before, so we didn't wanna drive ourselves nuts either. Okay, so I'm gonna introduce our guests tonight. And as I do so, they can each turn on their camera and audio. Oh, I have to stop the screen share first. Let's remember all the little things that I have to do. Okay, great. So uh, I can introduce our guests. I'll start with the composers. Uh, so David T. Little is here with us today. Hey, David. Hello, how you doing? Great. Good to see you. Thanks for uh, joining us from Weehawken, New Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for putting all this together. Yeah, and uh, Natalie Joachim coming to us from Chicago, Illinois. All right. Hiya. Wearing her Nina Simone shirt. <laughs> uh, we have a literary guest. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to say on Relevant Tones, and our literary guest tonight is uh, J. Robert Lennon. Uh, John, thanks so much for coming to us from Ithaca, New York. Hey, everybody. Hey, Seth. <laughs> Got that style and virtual background going. Uh, and our musical guests tonight are cellist Nick Fotinos and Yasuka Ora. So they're coming to us from Evanston, Illinois. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, so yeah, this is pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a, 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 a weird time, and I would much rather that we were on stage somewhere together. Uh, at the same time, getting all of you in a room would all, probably be impossible normally. So uh, this is pretty exciting. So um, a little bit about the format of the show. Zoom conversations can be a little awkward. So I was telling all of our guests last night via email that I'm, I'm going to generally target a question to an individual. And um, if, if they don't feel like they have much to say, it's like Hollywood Squares. They can just point to somebody else and punt the, punt the question. Um, but I think it's a little easier because otherwise you get that no, you go, no, you go thing in Zoom that can be a little, a little awkward. Um, so let's start with a question for John, uh, our, our writer guest, give you a little softball question. And oh, we'll see the softball. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the theme tonight is narrative in literature and music. So John, as a writer, I'm curious, when you have an idea for a story, do you have a sense if this narrative is, is going to work as a short story or a novel right away? I mean, do you know where it's going or does it sometimes even surprise you as you're developing it? The older I get, the more surprised I am by the, by the results, I have to say. 
um, sometimes I have an idea and I know that it's a short story idea because usually it's a, um, it sort of encapsulates a small experience in someone's life, uh, a series of events that, I don't know, uh, feels to me like would best be done quickly. And in terms of who is going to be sort of consuming it, uh, like uh, uh, read in one single session, right? Uh, start to finish. Um, sometimes I think I'm writing a story and I get 10 or 15 pages in and suddenly realize that whatever this thing is that I've started, it, it can't be finished in a reasonable amount of time. There's a, there's a piece that just came out this week in Granta called The Station um, that involves a guy arriving on, an, on an, uh, a seemingly abandoned island with some buildings on it where he has to do some, some kind of job. And I thought it would be a sort of Kafkaesque a short piece, and uh, by the time I got to the end of it, it was pretty clear that I'd, I'd, I'd asked more questions than I'd answered, and I would have to keep going. So I will eventually, but um, I haven't yet. That's actually something that's really interesting in music, too. I, I was thinking that there's so many times I've been at a concert, and I'm listening to a piece, and I'm thinking, eh, I don't know if I like this piece, and then something happens at the end, and, and it changes my understanding of the entire piece. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shoot, <laughs> now I want to hear it again. Um, David, does that, is something like that ever happened to you musically? Well, I definitely have had the experience of when I'm writing something, <clears throat> sort of not necessarily knowing where it's going uh, or even fully understanding the work until sometimes years after it's premiered. Uh, that happened with Soldier Songs where I, I knew that the ending needed to be what it was, but it wasn't clear to me why. And it wasn't really clear to me what it meant until I was in dress rehearsal, I think several years after the premiere and then said, oh, I get it now. This is, this is what it is and this is why it needed to be this. Mm -hmm. And Natalie, how about you? Have you, have you had that sense like uh, that, that the, the, what happens at the very end of a piece could, could potentially change your understanding or, or uh, the way that you experienced what, what came before? Yeah, I mean, I have definitely had that experience. And I think that I'm trying to get more into a space of like, definitely, I would say the past several years, I've been sort of switching it up and letting go of the idea of like the order of a thing and also just sitting with the material for a long time, a really long time so that it sort of lets me know how it wants to be shaped instead of I think I used to be really attached to this sort of like linear, like, this is how this is going to end or like, you know, this is what I'm working towards. Um, and so I've just gotten to this weird place of being like, you know, the beginning of something is just where you start, where you're starting to make something, it doesn't mean that that's the beginning of the thing or the end of the thing even. And so mm -hmm. I've been turning a lot of work on its head lately, which feels kind of nice. <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing too, because there's been a lot of times that I've started writing something thinking it's the beginning of the piece and it becomes the middle or it becomes the end. Uh, John, does that happen to you in narrative with storytelling? Do you ever say like uh, an event that you think is gonna start a novel? Actually, you know, it turns out that, that it is gonna work better later on in the novel. Yeah, in fact, uh, what Natalie was saying really, really spoke to what how I've changed over time too. When I was younger, I would I would get an idea and I would fully flesh it out in my head, and I could picture the sort of perfectly formed version of it. Um, and I'm sure that that the composers have had similar experiences. You begin to actually create the thing, and you get something different. Um, and I think when I was younger, I thought of that as a as a, a a bug, and now I think of it as a feature. Right, the initial idea, the thing that I think is going to be the um, nexus, the, 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 the important germ of the story might end up being 
entirely um, extraneous and might not even make it into the final thing. Um, so the process is, has gradually become much more important to me than, than some per conception that I think of as perfect when I think of it. Uh, I know I said I'm not going to throw this out to everybody, but I'm throwing this out to everybody. Do you? Because that happens to me too. Uh, something I thought would work in a piece, it's, it's good material, but it's not going to make it. It's not going to work in this particular piece. I pull it aside and keep it somewhere else. Everybody, can, can we react to that? Like, how do, how do you feel about that? I'm right, very into pulling things. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very into pulling things aside and and putting them in a in a box to look at later. And this moment in time has been good. I've been finding all kinds of things in those boxes lately, which is great. Because um, it is true that it's not always that they're bad. They just didn't become a part of the thing. They, you know, it's just like it, this wasn't its home. Um, so I kind of like that. And also, you know, when you come back to things, like there's a piece that I was looking at recently that you should, like a, or a little sketch of something from years ago. And now my brain is just, you know, my whole like life experience is so different in this moment that it allows me to take it somewhere very different now than I once would have. So I kind I love that actually. Mm -hmm. David, how about you? I don't tend to do that when I'm writing uh, music, but I will definitely do that with ideas um, and, you know, narrative ideas and actually, and this guy was still there is an example of that. And we can get into that later, but that was definitely something that was, um, the story was sort of left over from another project and it didn't quite fit into that initial project. And then it found its own home. Mm -hmm. and John, musically, I tend to, it, musically, I tend to be, when I'm, I'm writing the piece, I will, if I don't use something, I'll usually just kind of throw it away. And then I don't, I don't save a lot in terms of material. I have a folder uh, in my documents called the orphans. That's all, that's all the stuff that I've abandoned and will never go back to. But occasionally I do have uh, my, the last novel of mine uh, that I published involved this subplot uh, involving a, um, a couple of criminals. One, one of them kind of a psychopath and the other one sort of along for the ride. And uh, um, they came from a failed novel that I'd spent a year and a half writing and then got <laughs> sent it to my agent and was told, nah, you should write another one. <laughs> <laughs> and and I set it aside, and but then these two characters, the I thought of them as the only good thing in the in the book. And uh, when I needed someone to fill a role in the new book, I realized, oh, of course, those guys. And of course, once I once I brought them in, uh, they changed according to the story that I was telling in that book. But um, I I uh, was glad to get to rescue them from another work. Yeah, I, and that's an interesting thing too—the idea of of your your agent or editor having so much um, feedback over what writers do, and, and we, we kind of have that as composers with publishers, but not really as much. I'm not sure that the relationship is as in-depth, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, curious to talk to Nick and Yasuko a little bit. Uh, from your perspective uh, right now, I mean, you do a lot more than this, but as performers, when, you, when you're playing music, um, you know, what we've been talking about, how is that resonating with you? What, what, what thoughts are filtering through your mind right now? Well, it depends. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, the difference between improv, which I have actually haven't done that much of, and then like most of the performance I'm doing, which is really, you know, you have the whole thing laid out and it's imperative that you know where it's going when you start. Um, and that <clears throat> knowing that ending can often help you like decide how to approach the beginning. So like, you know, as performers will often you know, it's really great to not just rehearse things beginning to end, but start in the middle 
start at the end, not only because you can get bogged down at the beginnings, but also so you can get like a really fully formed sense of the whole thing without, you know, by just looking at that by itself first. So. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting thing with improvisation too, uh, versus structured music where, you know, in improv, I've caught myself listening and, and, and uh, I think, oh, that's a perfect ending. And then they continue to play. And I think, darn it, that was, you missed a perfect ending, but that's not the point of improvisation. You know, <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm thinking all narratively and structurally, you know, and sometimes I have to remind myself, like, that's, that's not what, what this is, Seth, like, you know, chill out. <laughs> but I will say, you, you know, when you're improvising, part of that is like finding the ending, right? I mean, there is, there yeah. is that sort of element to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, you, you do hear a lot of missed endings in, in composed music too, you know. And, and in fiction, I must say as well. I mean, I, yeah. I, I wanted to say, Seth, uh, yeah, don't chill out. Don't chill out. <laughs> I was, I was going to say about performing music too. I think it's the, you know, people were talking about like in a story, you know, having to write X amount of time, but finding out it's really a novel. I find the reverse is often true where like I hear a piece and like, oh man, this would be such a killer 10 minute piece. Unfortunately, it's 20 minutes long. You know, it's like, you know, maybe someone did need an editor. And it's funny because like in music, we, you know, composers often don't get one. So. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and editors deal more with parts and, you know, the sort of materials, then you should cut these 30 bars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that that's like one of my favorite things about like having a creative partnership with Allison and Flutronics is because we, we co-write a lot of music together, but I have someone who can, who like knows me very well, who can be like, girl, this whole <laughs> section is just a wreck. Like delete. <laughs> it's kind of nice. It's actually nice to have a built-in buddy for that. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll add to that that sometimes I bet this is true for you as well. That one of the you feel so attached to a thing that you're eventually going to get rid of, but the reason you feel so attached is that's the thing you work the hardest on, and the reason you work the hardest on is because it's bad. <laughs> you're trying to make it good, uh, and you can't. It's so true. I have to say though, I will say about this whole like thinking of narrative and order and like how we intake music and you know like where to even begin listening or performing it i feel a way about like shuffle and listening to albums i, I miss the time in which like we really were forced to listen to albums beginning to end and there was like no just like oh i'm skipping through this like the experience of the album was the thing mm -hmm. and i i think back to like the early 2000s late 90s and that was like my whole life was like i knew every breath on every album possible you just know the whole thing beginning to end and then, you know, the invention of shuffle came and you're like, is anybody listening to this whole thing? Like, why am I, you know, <laughs> it makes you think about listening to recorded music definitely in a different way. Can I, I'm curious of all the composers, including Seth could talk about that. Like how has um, some of you, I guess some of you are younger than me, but not all of you maybe, but I, like this, this change in the way people listen to music, has it changed the way you think about your composition and performance of music? I don't know. I mean, I think that like, I don't think it probably has, should have changed how I think of it more than it has. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's my safe answer. <laughs> yeah, I think my works have just gotten longer and longer as, you know, they were all shorter before shuffle existed. And now they're like, you know, 30 minutes to two hours. <laughs> so 
I always just assumed that nobody's listening to my stuff on Spotify because uh, I'm a contemporary classical music person and I just figure, you know, like, um, it's, it's, I don't think it's affected me so much. I mean, and, and so much of my life has revolved around concerts, around uh, doing things live. I mean, that, that's why really th this time is difficult right now because um, I like recorded music, but I, I have uh, issued very little of my music on recordings. I've spent very little time in recording studios. I have instead put so much energy into producing and participating in and playing on and going to concerts. Um, so I, I can't say shuffle has affected me too much, except that maybe I'm thinking like I, I'm a loser and I, I was focusing on the wrong things, you know. <laughs> now recorded sound, like, yeah, that was probably the way to go. Um, let's segue to Natalie's piece. Let's have a let's have a nice music break. Um, so, uh, Natalie, uh, we were talking about yesterday uh, via email about your piece, and I was saying that you know there isn't a narrative per se, and yet you've done this marvelous idea of evoking an entire world. Um, talk about the piece a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I actually really like that that um, that is how you described it because in many ways this piece was really the predecessor, or it's like the first nugget of me beginning to think of the concept behind my album, Fondaiti. And it, what's funny about that is that, that that whole album is like deeply narrative and deeply rooted in narrative and like set, has such a narrative thread, connective tissue through the entire record. So it is nice to go back to this piece because it reminds me of the moment like before I knew that there was going to be a, thr a through line. Um, and I was really just thinking about the people my own family are how we share time with one another through music the landscape of haiti and how music is really ever present and that was really what this piece became about sort of painting the picture of that landscape my connection to these voices and a sort of um interesting way of like centering them and weaving them in with an acoustic instrument so um, that's, you know, the story behind it. The piece is called Damoyo, which means my ladies. And um, it, ha it features samples of my own voice, the voices of my cousins all kind of woven together, which is really, it's a family affair, which feels really nice. Um, and, it's, and it's about just that. It's sort of about um, celebrating these female voices that have been such a deep part of the soundtrack of my life and um, you know, right now is a moment where I would, I would love to be able to be on our farm in Haiti and hearing all these sounds. So I like that we're listening to this tonight and Nick plays it gorgeously every time flawlessly. So, <laughs> um, I'm always happy to, to listen to him perform it. Awesome. Nick, any thoughts on the, on the piece? She summed it up. It's just, it's a beautiful piece to play. Thank you so much, Natalie. So thanks I, for playing yeah, it. I adore playing it. <laughs> All right, let's turn off our cameras and mics and we'll, we'll listen to uh, Natalie's piece, Nam Wen Yo.
Okay, that was Dom Wen Yo by Natalie Duashen. Big, big applause. Good job, Nick. <laughs> Performed by Nick Pupinos on cello uh, from the comfort of his living room. <laughs> Pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's such a beautiful piece. And, and uh, I was thinking it is, you know, uh, there, there's this concept of saying a lot with very, very little. And Natalie, I think you, you've done that there in many respects. And I, I mean that like in a, in a really good way, like a haiku, you know, <laughs> like, uh, like these brushstrokes. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's like, uh, we'll talk about a little bit um, going towards my piece, because there's a concept in painting of, um, of, of leaving some space empty. That, so that you focus more fully on the other space that the painter wants you to see. But, it, but in your piece, I just, I get the feeling that, I mean, it just transports me like immediately. And, you know, I, I do think one of the things I, I wanted to talk about is this idea of abstract music, or I'm sorry, absolute music versus program music, because some people have said that, uh, you know, an F chord is F-A-C. Those are the pitches, they're frequencies. There, there's no inherent meaning in them. And that's probably true, except for the fact that if you play an F chord for a human being, we're gonna go, oh, it's happy. Who's happy? Why are they happy? I mean, we have this causality where we, we wanna walk it back. <laughs> and I think that it's a function of humans to graft narrative onto things. So when I hear your piece, I'm just saying like, for me, um, I'm so curious about these women, I'm curious about their lives, and, and you can't help but kind of invent stories for people as you listen. I love that. That's, you know, it's also like very true to the Haitian spirit. I think that Haiti is a, culturally, we're all about storytelling. I mean, Nick will tell you, if, if you ask me to tell you any story, <laughs> there's like what happened and then there's the like Haitian version of what happened, which is like always super <laughs> colorful. <laughs> and, um, so there, there's a lot of storytelling, you know, practice and how we participate with each and engage with each other as a culture. So I really love that that comes out in this piece. Um, and yeah, I just, I love that it, it, that it could help create a picture for you in your own mind that is personal to you or, you know, makes you feel the music more deeply because I don't know, that's gratifying to me. I know it's not, I know, you know, as you said, like for a lot of composers, it sort of doesn't matter. But for me, I, I'm interested in this space where the personal for me, you know, can transport someone to their own personal space and how those, you know, how, how those worlds interact even conceptually is really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And what you said reminds me, uh, there's this old movie called The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance and a, a publisher says, if, if you have the chance to publish the truth or the legend, publish the legend, <laughs> you know, um, because that's, you know, I mean, we, we are mythic, myth-making people, creatures, you know, like that is really what we are. We can't help it. And I think that's a, a big part of narrative. I mean, I don't know, we don't have time to get into truth versus, you know, whatever. But, um, great. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? No. Cool. So I want to, yeah, talk about, I want to talk about this idea um, in, in, in painting of, of having negative space that influences how, you know, the idea is that uh, the painter wants you to look at a painting and, uh, and, and see this thing first, and then this, and then this, which is a form of narrative, really, how, you, how you're reading the painting, as it were, and, and leaving certain areas blank is, is one way that they do that. I'm curious, John, is, is there an equivalent in literature? Is, is there an equivalent in writing where, where you, you, know, you leave things unsaid to hopefully say things more strongly or, or guide people in a certain direction? Yeah, I think that's really important, and it's maybe the hardest thing to learn. Um, I, I, my day job is teaching writing at a college, and um, I'm often telling my students that you don't need all this extra stuff. 
um, that you can just strip it down to these things and then build those back up, ignoring all the stuff on the outside um, that I feel like um, we want art to be a little enigmatic. We want the experience of trying to figure it out, you know? Um, and so uh, I think an, an, a skillful artist hints at possible meanings uh, or may even offer up a ready-made meaning and then sort of slyly undercut it so that, uh, so that the, the reader or the viewer or the listener uh, can sort of form their own idea of what's actually going on. Um, there's, I think there's also a sense that literature is maybe more programmatic than any other form because the words are right there and they say what happens. But of course, I always tell my students when we're all reading the same book, go out of my way to point out that everyone has, has got the same text in front of them, but we've all, you know, fiction is a participatory art, right? We're recreating this world in our heads based on the map that the writer has given us. And everyone has a different, has a different uh, view of it. And often we have very different opinions about what we just read. So. Mm -hmm. David, you teach composition. I mean, do you feel like you're saying the same thing to students? I, I used to teach composition too. And I remember thinking, people don't have trouble coming up with ideas. They have trouble ordering them in a way that makes sense. Or, or do you find that students are putting way too many ideas, too much material into their pieces? It depends. I mean, I think every student is different. And so, you know, I can't make any sort of general statements about it, but I, I definitely think, um, you know, what um, you're saying about um, the sort of literal meaning versus, you know, that, that the book is a map, right? makes me think of the difference between someone like Strauss and Webern, right? I feel like there's, there is a kind of journey in each of these, uh, these composers' works, but someone like Strauss, you know, these tone poems where it's something very specific. It's like, now you're on a mountain. Now there's a storm. Um, I find that, and I love Strauss, but I find that a little irritating, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Um, whereas, whereas listening to some like Webern, you know, the, the symphony, there's definitely a journey and you're sort of experiencing all of these different possibilities of story that you're sort of creating yourself. Um, but there isn't, you know, there's no specific mountaintop that you're climbing to, to greet mm -hmm. the, the sun or whatever, you know. You just segue to the next thing I want to talk about. Thank oh, you. Oh, did I? <laughs> it was awesome. Um, you know, so, so like, again, this concept that I had for white space, I mean, you know, when someone says, well, how did you put that into music, which I've been guilty of asking people that question in interviews before, and they go, I don't know, <laughs> you know, it was my inspiration. I sat down at the piano, and this is what came out, which is very much the truth for me, too. But I'm thinking, you know, like, I'm thinking of a case years ago, to your point, David, where I wrote a, a piano concerto, and the second movement was inspired by this idea, uh, Yukimi Saki in, in Japanese, and I'm, I'm a probably abusing that word horribly, but the idea was a philosophical idea to drink sake while the snow falls and you, you ponder the fleeting nature of time, you know, temporality in a sort of beautiful way, like you're, you're at peace with it. And I thought, yep, that's, that's the second movement. I'm going to write my second movement. And um, I got reviewed, which is awesome, but the critic deemed me, you know, she said something like, well, I don't get how at, you know, four minutes, this is still related to that. And I'm like, no, that was just my initial inspiration. <laughs> and then I worked it out musically from there. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, this isn't where he puts the cup down and this is, you know, um, so I was just curious if people can react to that, like in your own music, have you had experiences with that, you know, the kind of expectations that people have when you give program notes or when you say what your inspiration is? I mean, I, I had something as a listener kind of maybe like that when I was, you know, maybe 15 listening to John Zorn's Naked City albums and and experiencing that from a 15 second song, I had a memory of an hour of music. 
and the idea that um, that how time works in music and how time interacts with the memory is 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 its own sort of world um, to be explored. Um, so I love the idea that you have this piece that is sort of about the long reach of time that is four minutes long. I think that's kind of perfect. That's sort of the perfect length for a piece about eternity. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I really like this idea that we're talking about where, where you give a listener a general suggestion of something, um, knowing full well that, that they will graft their own things onto it, that it, it won't, you know, it will, it will always be different. And it is interesting when you have a, you know, I'm sure every composer here and John too, if you've done a reading I and mean, people, you've done readings, lots of readings, but people come up to you afterwards and they always say like, oh, your piece reminded me of, and they tell you the story and it's completely unrelated to what you were thinking. It's like, wow, cool. Um, I mean, they're going to do that no matter what you do, which, which is, you know, and we're all going to die someday and hopefully our music will still get played. And, you know, it's, it's an intriguing thing really that, that I think it's better to almost just make a suggestion and know that, that it's going to be interpreted in various and sundry ways. I feel like if you're the kind of artist who really wants people to get a specific thing out of your work, you're going to be very disappointed talking to people who actually enjoy it. <laughs> because I think they're, I think that you're right. That happens a lot. People's responses to the work are, are really varied. Mm -hmm. And that's great. I mean, that's sort of, that's, I feel like that's sort of what it's about. It's about people taking what they need from the work, you know, and, and, you know, I think we can give them as much as we can, as much as we can put into a work that they can draw from and, and then, you know, find inspiration from. I think that's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. I, I was going to say, actually, I, I have never, uh, this brings like film scoring to my mind so vividly and, I have never done any film scoring myself, but I recently had a piece of mine be used in a film and it was like kind of amazing <laughs> to, to see that it worked and also that the story has like nothing, nothing at all to do with like where the piece came from, what it was about, like my inspiration behind it, just not connected in any way. But I, I bought it, you know what I mean? Like if I were just seeing the film and had never known my music, I would have totally believed that it was like created for that moment. And I think that's beautiful. Cool. Like All music right, for 18 in Hunger Games. It's <laughs> great, it works so perfectly. Steve was totally thinking that when he wrote it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's take a music break. So we're gonna hear uh, Nick and Yasuko perform my piece, White Space. This is a short piece. It's part of a, a larger piece. This is one movement. Um, I think it's about four or four and a half minutes. All right, we'll turn off our cameras and have a listen.
All right. <laughs> Thank you. And Beautiful. thanks to Nick and Yasuko, too. Uh, I love my ninths, and Nick is killing them. Gorgeous. <laughs> hey, that was lovely. <laughs> Those are not, I know, your hand. That's like brutal. Oh, <laughs> So we're moving towards um, Andrew Norman's sonnets. And um, I, I wanted to chat about this, uh, kind of mentioned it a little bit, but um, one of the interesting things about a sonnet or, or a haiku that, that, that uh, I think is really fascinating in narrative uh, is, is this kind of like, there's like a switcheroo at, at the end, you know? So um, they'll, they'll say a couple of things and you think that you're in one setting and then the final line or the final stanza in a, in a sonnet will, change your understanding of it again. It's like we were talking about temporally with music. Um, and uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about that, John, is that a device that you've used, not like specifically writing a sonnet, but is that a device you've used in a short story or something where a character is actually a mass murderer or, you know, there's, there's a completely different understanding of this character because of a, a twist somewhere? Yeah, I, I'm of two minds about this. I, I mean, what you're sort of, the, the, the way you're putting it is, the the sort of twist ending of a of a story or a, a action thriller movie or something, which can be really entertaining, but um, is also kind of a kind of a tick. Um, as a teacher, I see a lot of attempted twist endings that don't really work that much or work that well, rather. Um, but I do think that art has to undermine expectations in some way, otherwise it becomes predictable, right? Um, the thing I often say in class is that you, you don't want to give the reader what they want. Uh, they want. You want to give them the thing that they don't yet realize that they want. Um, you know, you, can, you have, have secretly been setting the stage for something so that when it happens, it won't seem like it's out of left field. It will seem like, oh, seem real and real, realistic and true, um, but it will also surprise uh, the reader. Um, rather than the, the other side of that coin is, a, is that such an ending can be kind of manipulative, right? You feel like you've been tricked and thus it feels like a gimmick. Um, but I actually think that, you know, a, a well-rendered surprise in fiction matches what happens in life. You know, the kind of situation where you're shocked when something happens and then when, when it's all over and you look back on it, you think, oh, of course that was going to happen. <laughs> of course it was. Uh, it's so fun. I'm just thinking like, you know, we're, we, okay, so we've gone a long ways from the, the, the concept of the sonnet in, into the plot twist. So we're going to go there, which is cool, because I don't want the chat to blow up. Like, that's oh, not what a sonnet is. <laughs> Can I say one more thing? I, I, I was mentally pushing back on your F chord like half an hour ago. Because if you, you know, if someone plays the F and then they play the A and they wait 10 seconds to play the C, you get the chord, but there's this moment where you feel like, am I going to get the chord? Or am I not going to get the chord? And in that, those 10 seconds, like whole worlds of anxiety can happen for the listener, right? Or at least for the reader and my literary equivalent of it. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, because you bring up uh, expectation, you know, I mean, knowing that, that something's about to happen, but not knowing when it is, is a form of torture. But with the F major chord, you could also play the A and C in, in a range where it sounds like it's minor and then play the F so low or, or high. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a happy sound is what I'm saying. So there's a variety of ways to play with uh, expectation sonically, but also temporally, which, which is pretty interesting. Um, so Nick, uh, Andrew wrote the sonnets for you, is that right? No, <laughs> but uh, that's okay. Uh, I did. I was the first to record it. I was the first to record it. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, and I mean, like, they're just really beautiful miniatures. I mean, like, he even explains in the program notes that he's not 
he is kind of referencing, like the titles are all taken from, you know, little bits of the sonnets, but they're just like three words. They don't really have that much to do with the sonnet as a whole. It's really just these interesting little like word snippets. And then he runs with it for a minute and a half. So yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and, and it's, it's more about, I mean, uh, you, you can say it better than me, Nick, but it's the sound, right? Uh, it's not uh, necessarily the way that a sonnet is structured. Yeah, well, so yeah, again, in the notes, he says um, he was interested in the word, the Italian word sonetto, which is little song. So yeah, so each of these is just a little song that's riffing on this like one little idea. And it's interesting because there's so much narrative you can like, you know, we were just talking about the narrative that you can get out of three notes. I think this is that exactly, except riffing off of just a small little liter literary snippet. Do you want to list them? Um, they're listed on the, on, on the, in the recording, okay. yeah. So you'll see the names of each one. Nick doesn't remember, do you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I remember i don't i'm sure if i listed them off i would forget one of them so that's why i put them on the video hey that's why we use slides you know <laughs> okay let's do it let's hear the sonnets by andrew norman performed by nick fotinos on cello and yasuko ora on piano <laughs> 